It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. gentlemen thank you for joining us for the tuesday edition of our podcast and I, I gotta be honest with you this is a treat for me on a number of levels i've been trying to get this guest to come on either television or podcast because and at the end you be the judge you tell me if i'm right or wrong and for my money he is one of the more underappreciated people in all of government you whether you know it or not are familiar with his work you, whether you know it or not, are familiar with his investigations. And yet most of you, most of you probably could not give me his name. You could not tell me who he works for. And the really interesting part is he's OK with that in a world that rewards people who are provocative and loud and bombastic. Uh, he is not any of that. He is a fact centric, former federal prosecutor, former DOJ official, currently I'll give it away. The Inspector General for the Department of Justice. Mr. Michael Horowitz is his name, and he joins us. Mr. Inspector General, I cannot thank you enough for joining us and, and loaning your insight and your background and your perspective to our listeners. Well, it's great to be with you, and I feel like I still need to call you Mr. Chairman at some level, um, <laughs> given how many hearings we had together. That's because you were a great witness, and, and, and you're right in the middle of everything. And yet in an apolitical way. But before I get into that, I want I want you. So we've got listeners that are going to say, look, I've heard of the inspector general. And once we get into some of the investigations, they're going to think, OK, I didn't realize that's who that was. Tell us where your jurisdiction lies, how you receive leads or tips or how you decide what to investigate. Uh, it's great to be here. And I, I'm thrilled to be able to speak to your listeners about that and and talk about some of these issues, because I agree with you. I think it is underappreciated um, the importance of what we've been set up to do, particularly, you know, as we've seen the difficulty Congress and the executive branch have in effectively conducting oversight and performing their work. So at the Justice Department, we have broad jurisdiction that covers all almost all of the activities, I should say, of the Justice Department. We have entire jurisdiction over the Federal Bureau of Investigation, entire jurisdiction over the Drug Enforcement Administration, entire jurisdiction over the federal prison system, um, which most people don't realize um, is actually the largest employer at the Justice Department and the second largest budget at the Justice Department. We have authority over the U.S. Marshal Service. We have authority to supervise and oversee the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. And we have authority to oversee most but not all of the misconduct by federal prosecutors. And that's an important issue, an important exception, something you and I worked on to try and fix for many years. Unfortunately, we couldn't get the bill through the Senate. But we have authority to oversee criminal wrongdoing by department lawyers. But we actually don't have authority to oversee misconduct by them that would be considered professional misconduct. In other words, misconduct, for example, in the courtroom. Um, that goes to an entity called the Office of Professional Responsibility at the Justice Department. And the problem that I've had and my predecessors had with that, and you had with that as you tried to move this bill uh, through Congress, is I have statutory independence, as I'm sure we'll be talking about. The head of OPR uh, Office of Professional Responsibility is appointed by the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General and reports to them. And so they do not have the same level of independence that I do. All right. So you can do pretty much everything except attorneys in non-criminal investigations. And what I find interesting is you are not a dentist. Uh, you're not an accountant. You are indeed a former federal prosecutor who worked at the Department of Justice. And That's right. I mean, is the argument that, that they don't want to be judged by potentially non 
I can't imagine a non-lawyer being in your job, but what is their argument for why you should not have jurisdiction in that area? So the lawyer issue has largely been resolved, even though the statute doesn't say it. the IG has to be a lawyer. Um, For 30 years now, it's been a lawyer. My predecessors, except for the initial IG, were lawyers. And everybody agrees it should be a lawyer. So the argument against it that has been the public argument is we've managed this responsibility well at the department, and you don't need to provide it to a statutorily independent inspector general. We're sufficiently independent to handle it, and we've shown that we can do a good job. Now, I think we've seen through judges' opinions, not mine, concerns about how federal prosecutors have been overseen. A number of judges have written very strong opinions objecting to how the department has handled prosecutorial misconduct allegations in numerous cases. And the process by which they go about it and they report out isn't transparent like we are. Um, As you know, I've testified before Congress well over 50 times now in my 10 years there. The head of the Office of Professional Responsibility doesn't testify at all before Congress. Um, Our reports are all public on our website, with the exception of classified reports and uh, investigative reports that Privacy Act would limit us from putting forward. There's only a handful of reports that Office of Professional Responsibility has made public, and the ones they've made public are generally only the ones that they worked on jointly with us or had some or had already been foiled by a private entity and made public. So I think that argument is not a particularly strong one. Um, And frankly, there is no reason why we should be investigating FBI agents, DEA agents, ATF agents, marshal service deputies for misconduct, but lawyers are not investigated or viewed by us and are instead reviewed by an organization that reports to the attorney general and that is appointed by the attorney general and can be removed by the attorney general. An important point, the only person who can remove me from my office is the president of the United States. I have meetings with the attorney general regularly and the attorney and the deputy attorney general regularly. And this, by the way, I've been through, this is my third administration, five attorneys general, five deputy attorney general, Same for all of them. Doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat. As you know, everything we do is bipartisan, nonpartisan. And so there is simply no principled reason why that should be the case. I think the real reason that they're concerned about this is they're worried that Congress has the ability to potentially influence me. I think they're fearful that somehow Congress would interfere with the department's investigative work. I think we've proven that's not the case. That wouldn't happen. But I think behind the scenes, that's what they're mostly worried about. Well, I don't think any, I can't swear that people wouldn't try to interfere with you, but the Michael Horowitz that I worked with, nobody is going to like influence him, which leads to this. Okay, you investigate. I'm sure our our listeners out there are saying, okay, he's the Inspector General for the Department of Justice. It's got a bunch of entities within that umbrella that I didn't know about, like BOP. I knew about the FBI and DOJ, but you don't work for Chris Ray and you don't work for Judge Garland. You were Senate confirmed. And if my memory serves me correctly, uh, Mr. Inspector General, I, don't, I think you were unanimously. I don't think you lost a vote, did you? Right. It was unanimous floor. It was uh, unanimous consent, basically, on the on the floor. They, they didn't actually take a formal vote. All right. I'm going to pick on three of your biggest areas of jurisdiction. I'm going to pick something that our 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 listeners would know about that you did. I'm interested in more the process of how you gather information, how you conduct investigations. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to give us an example of something that did not make the news, but should have. Yep. Because all three of these made the quote news. Yep. But a lot of your work does not. And, and maybe it should. So uh, people are just fascinated with Jeffrey Epstein. I am not. I have to confess. I I am not. I've never been interested in that. Uh, Once he died, I was interested in him being prosecuted. But once he died, I didn't care. 
you had to look at that through your jurisdiction over the of, of the Bureau of Prisons. Tell us what you want about the investigation, what you found, and then give us examples of BOP investigations that we really ought to be following. So great question. And I think this is an underappreciated area of what we do. Um, the BOP takes up actually almost half my time in terms of our casework, because there are so many issues and challenges there and problems there. Um, so Jeffrey Epstein, remember getting the call that Saturday morning, August 10, it's being told Epstein was found dead in his cell. Hard to fathom and process how the most notorious prisoner, the most notorious prisoner in the Justice Department's custody, in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, ends up dead in a cell alone. How does that happen? And that's the question we get from Attorney General Barr at the time, from members of Congress, from the public. Well, how did this happen? Uh, now, the FBI opens up an investigation to determine whether there's evidence of a homicide, because if it's a homicide, then it would be primarily within their jurisdiction. Um, if a BOP employee was involved in the homicide, then we would both work together because our jurisdiction is about Justice Department employees. If an inmate had killed Epstein, that's entirely FBI. I have no jurisdiction. They investigated. They ultimately determined there wasn't evidence of criminality, which left it to us to write the report we issued uh, about a month or two ago now, laying out what we found about how did this happen? How did he end up coming to be found dead in the cell alone that, that morning? Um, and the report is evidence of a series of events and, and failures that were um, completely unacceptable, outrageous, wrong. You could use any number of adjectives to describe it for someone in that position. What's sad is, this is what I don't think most people realized when that happened, his situation, as we found out, frankly, wasn't much different from all the other reports we've done about BOP wrongdoing and misconduct that we've seen in so many other instances, but didn't involve a high-profile inmate. During COVID, we did a report on this. Seven inmates committed suicide while single-celled because they were quarantined for potential COVID. After action reviews determined that at least five of them, probably all seven, had indicia of suicide potential, but were never checked out before put in the cell. Epstein, it appeared, tried to commit suicide two weeks earlier. The psychology department puts him under suicide watch, and then they, as consistent with regular practice, they slowly downgrade him to what is now putting him back in a special housing unit, it's called so that he can have additional eyes on him. They also may send to a wide range of people at the federal prison he's in, the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York, that he needs to have a cellmate at all times. As you might guess, that's one of the primary ways you prevent someone from committing suicide, because an inmate would get in trouble if they let their cellmate commit suicide. What happens? Well, on the Thursday before he's found dead, the marshal service says that his cellmate notifies, again, a wide range of people, 70-plus employees at BOP, his cellmate's being moved the next day after his cellmate's court appearance. As our listeners might not know, the prison he was being held in was a pretrial detention facility. In federal prison, that means those people are there awaiting trial. They're going to court in and out a lot. And it's not unusual for there to be a lot of inmate movements out of the institution away from it. His cellmate was getting moved. No one did anything. No one did anything about it. So the next night, when Epstein returned to his cell, he was left alone in the cell. They found the next morning in the cell, not only the bed sheet, his bed clothes that had been ripped into a noose around his neck, they found other nooses in his cell block and, and lots of clothing, extra clothing, bed sheets that he never should have had in there. And if readers want to go to the report, they'll see pictures of it. They can read about it, that nobody did anything about that. They left the extra material in his cell and they didn't put a cellmate in. 
They also didn't do what's called rounds, particularly in the shoe, special housing unit shoe that he was in. You're supposed to do rounds regularly. Every half hour, you're supposed to do inmate counts. Not surprisingly, you want to make sure all your inmates are there. Pretty basic task of a prison, right? Uh-oh, one less number, that's a bad thing, right? They weren't doing the counts and the rounds. Not just that night, they just weren't doing them regularly. And on top of that, there's a camera in the cell block because it's a special housing unit. Well, about a month earlier, because the cameras were analog, and as you know, the camera system at the BOP is ancient. It's outdated. These are analog cameras putting out grainy images. Think of your old, you know, landing on the moon kind of images, right? That's what they're doing in 2023. This is 2019. That's what they're doing. But their recording system is digital. Guess what breaks down a few weeks earlier? The digital recording system isn't picking up the analog cameras. So the camera, importantly, this is very important for our report, the camera is still working which means live images are still being shot by the camera sent to a control room, but it's not recording, which means when the FBI and the OIG come in after his death, there's nothing there to look at. There's one camera that is still working and recording, and that's the camera that is outside the cell. Again, you go to the report, you'll see pictures of this, that is focused on the front door entrance to the ship and to the two correctional officers who were stationed right outside the door, or the one who was there and they rotate, which means we could eliminate the possibility that anybody got into the cell block. So it wasn't someone from the outside going in. Okay? And remember, this is the same jail that housed the first World Trade Center bombing terrorists and the blind sheep. So this is not a fly-by-night prison. This is a pretty sound prison. So no one could get in. In our estimation, our view, based on the facts, the only way somebody could have harmed him if it wasn't himself committing suicide was to get out of their cells. Some there are there were four cells on each side, four and four. Epstein is the front cell near the entrance to the shoe. One of those inmates from the other seven cells would have had to have exited their cell, gotten into his cell, killed him, and gotten back to their cell. There's no evidence that we found that cells were left unlocked because in the shoe, you're locked in your cell 23 hours a day. There's no evidence that Epstein's cell door was purposefully left unlocked. And keep in mind, and you know this from your prosecutorial days, the camera's working. The inmates don't know that it's not recording. It's highly unlikely. Our experience with the Bureau of Prisons is inmates commit their wrongdoings or crimes. BOP employees who engage in wrongdoing commit their crimes outside of a camera. There are blind spots in prisons. It's highly unlikely that someone would have wanted to, who wanted to murder Epstein, would have done so, well, knowing they were in full view of a camera that actually was working and thinking that it was probably recording. Right? So, There's all of that, plus what's found in his cell, plus the fact that on that Thursday, two days before he committed suicide, he wrote and notarized his lawyers who were defending him or visiting him, brought a notary. He wrote a new will and testament. That's two days before he's found out. And we interviewed the medical examiner who explained, and I won't even try here, from a physician standpoint, what the damage was to him and why she thought that was consistent with strangulation by suicide, not strangulation by homicide. But she also noted that his hands were clear. He didn't have a fight in him. There weren't scrapes of anything under his nails. There weren't bruises on his arms. And nobody who, I mean, I think there's a fair statement, nobody who strangled from behind doesn't just ignores resistance and just lets it happen, presumably, right, if it's a homicide. So we pieced all those facts together after, by the way, interviewing the inmates, interviewing correctional officers, 
interviewing wardens, assistant wardens, tenants, as we always do, going through tens of thousands of documents, getting people's devices, but obviously not the inmates, but the staff, looking at their text messages, looking at the paperwork they prepared, and ultimately reached the conclusion, we also didn't see evidence of criminality. What happened was consistent with him killing himself, but that really wasn't what our report was about. Our report was about whether um, it, 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 it touched on it because we had to decide whether the BOP employees were involved in any way, shape, or form. And if he had been murdered by another inmate, someone would have been accountable for leaving his door unlocked and leaving their cell doors unlocked, when for 23 hours a day they should be locked up. And by the way, there are additional other facts around this that I haven't mentioned, but that, to your point of what do we do, we spent two years plus doing this, piecing it together. In part, we had to wait for the FBI to finish their work and the U.S. Attorney's Office finish their work because we didn't want to interfere in it. If there was a criminal case, we didn't want to interfere with it. But then we did all that work afterwards. You're listening to my conversation with the Inspector General of the United States Department of Justice, Mr. Michael Horowitz. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I got to ask you this. All this time, all these witnesses, all these tedious think of every question you can ask witness interviews accessing the tape figuring out that the camera worked but the recording didn't work all the stuff you did and sometimes it is not a match for a headline in the national Enquirer. is it i mean frustrated may not be the right word i'm sure you don't like sit around thinking about am i frustrated or not but you do all of this work to reach a fact-centric conclusion and yet there persists these like factually unsupported rumors out there. Is there any sense that, you know, well, frustration, is there any frustration when that happens or are you a big boy and it's okay? You know, I say this a lot. I said it to you in one of our first meetings, you know, people have a right to whatever opinions they want to have, but you can't make up your own facts. Right. And my job as inspector general, I viewed from day one as putting out the most thorough, complete reports possible that, as you said, are fact-centric, that allow the public to know, here's factually what happened. And then, as readers will see if they look at our reports, we write at the end a chapter that says, here's our analysis, which is largely our opinion of what all those facts mean. As you know, most of our reports are 90% the first part or more, and 5 or 10% the last part, our analysis, because people have a right to know what's happening in their government, how things happened. Um, And it's why we were created, I think, as inspectors general. Sometimes it's to hold people accountable directly, which, by the way, happened here. We referred uh, a dozen or so employees to the the Bureau of Prisons because of their failures here. But we're also all about getting the facts out to the public and having people know what actually happened. So it isn't rumor or myth. There's facts. There are always going to be conspiracy theories about anything. People still think people didn't walk on the moon, right? (laughs) So you can't always, Elvis may be alive somewhere, I think some people think, right? He's Um, with John Bonham and Janis Joplin on an island in the Caribbean, I think. Yeah. Right. So we we can't address everything. What I do try and do, and um, people will see this in our reports, you will see in there footnotes about issues that some readers might say, why is that there? Well, that's there because someone has raised that question. And we want to be able to address it and not think for people that we ignored it. It may not be central to things, but again, important for us to answer those questions. One of my more vivid memories from Congress was waiting around one morning. I was in some giant room with like a thousand other people waiting around for your report 
in what the Bureau called mid-year exam. That is that is what they named their investigation. I guess it would, I'm trying to think of the fairest way to say this, the, um, their investigation into former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and then the uh, DOJ IG looked into Bureau and DOJ uh, conduct, and that report is out. People can go read that. I just remember waiting on you to issue your report because you were like the last middle of the road, fact centric person left in town. So, my question to you is how in the world do you conduct an investigation in a highly partisan atmosphere? Where everyone wants to kind of pick and choose. <laughs> well, he said this, but yes, he said that. How do you do that? Well, I think first and foremost, it goes to my training as a prosecutor. Um, I've said this a lot as well. I think being trained in that position, trying cases in front of a jury, was probably the best preparation for this position that I had. I had a lot of other positions as well as clerk for federal judge who was tremendous in doing this as well seeing right taking all the facts and trying to come out with a fair ruling in that case it starts by knowing every fact backwards and forwards you can't go to a courtroom trying a case and not know every fact backwards and forwards it, I, I often tell people i would go to a courtroom and i had to know the case as least as well as the defendant i charged with a crime now, he or she probably should have known more because it was their crime. But sometimes I knew more than they knew, right? Because I had access to a lot of other information. I needed to know the cases at least as well as the defendant, certainly better than the defense lawyer or the judge. And I needed to be able to speak to 12 jurors who were sitting in the box, who probably didn't want to be there, who couldn't speak. Think about that. You, you have to sit for weeks listening to a lawyer talk to you and you can't say anything back to them. You've got to be able to relate to 12 ordinary citizens who have come to take on perhaps the, one of the most important jobs in a democracy, which is to judge whether someone else committed a crime and probably will go to jail. And you've got to be able to relate to them, that information. And so that was tremendous training for this job, because while I'm not a prosecutor, I do have to be able to think about what are those silent people, our, our pub, you know, the public, the taxpayers, what are they thinking about? What would they want to know if they picked up this report and read it? The report's not for me. The report's for a lot of other people. It's for the attorney general. It's for members of Congress. It's for the chair of the Committee on Oversight. It's for the news media. But it's really all about what is it's really for the public. Anyone told me that, by the way, when I was going through the confirmation process, Dr. Tom Coburn. Oh, really? I sat down with him, said, who do you work for in this job? And he said, you work for the public. You don't work for me. You don't work for any of these other senators, the members of the House, the attorney general, the president. You work for the public. And that always for all of us who ever met Dr. Coburn, that always sticks with us. Great. Uh, supporter of the community, someone we really interacted with a lot. And so that's what we undertake. And something like this, particularly something that high profile, it's I need to get to every fact. I need to be able to respond to every, almost every, you know, uh, issue, potential issue out there. I've got to be prepared beyond belief when I show up at the hearing. I need to know that better than every member of Congress that I'm going to be in front of. And I believe that was the hearing we did, which was joint yes, between House Judiciary and House Oversight, yes, which sir. meant there were, if I recall correctly, 75 maybe members of Congress, of members of the House of Representatives there. I need to know it at least as well as all of them, because I'm speaking not only to them, but I'm speaking to the public the same way when, as a member of Congress, you would view your role sitting as the chair of the committee or as a member of a committee. And so that's what I've got to be prepared for. And so we spend a lot of time reviewing, in that case, 
probably upwards of a million documents that we got, 100 plus interviews, multiple interviews of attorneys general, deputies, attorney general, FBI directors, et cetera. I mean, we're interviewing everybody. We have access to everybody. And then we end up writing, in that case, about a 500-page report. And it's that lens, not because I think everybody's going to read it, because I know that's not likely, but it's to get all the facts out there, because some people will read the whole report, but most people are going to pick up and want to know what's on page 322 or what's in footnote 83. And that's what we're doing. And so my office, by the way, for those listening, is about 500 people, which Sounds like a lot of people until you realize we're overseeing 110 to 20,000 people at the Justice Department. And so we had about 10 or so people working on this review, mix of lawyers and agents and non-lawyers. And what they're doing is sending me literally binders of material. I'm doing like what you and I used to do as federal prosecutors. I'm getting that information and I'm literally sitting going through it as I'm reviewing the drafts of the report that they've written and thinking about, okay, this is all great, but I know Chairman Gowdy's going to ask me this question. If we answered that question, I know this reporter is going to ask this question. She or he's written about it, right? So I'm, I'm looking at it not only from what the evidence seems to show, but what are the questions out there that we've got to answer? And that's what we're doing through you know, usually 18 months or more of our work because it takes a lot of time to get the records, to review the records. Some of it is classified. Got to get through that. There's a classified appendix to that report. And so there's a lot of work that, that goes into these, an extraordinary amount of work, in, number of interviews and documents to review. And I would remind people, whether it's Jeffrey Epstein, whether it's mid-year exam, which was the server, um, email, those reports are available. You, yep. you can go read the non-classified report by I.G. Horowitz and his team. I got to ask you this about mid-year exam. I never got to ask you in a committee hearing because it, 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 it's really not important other than I just wonder when you discovered that there were text, FBI text. Did you have a sense of what you had? I mean, of all the other things that you found in your report, the text in and among FBI employees, to this day, it remained relevant in some people's eyes. I mean, they picked this text or that text. I mean, did you realize what you had when you saw that? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. It Yes, ultimately. Initially, it was, hey, you know, the team is giving me real-time updates because just, again, rewinding, I think you know this, but the report got delayed in part because of the texts we were finding. This was, we kept finding more and more information. And so it didn't get delayed formally, but we kept, this is what happens when we do our work. If we find new information, we have to keep going. So the team is saying, calling me up and saying, hey, we're seeing some texts here that raise some concerns. And we agreed, well, we got to now go back and get more texts, get put eyes on more of this, ask for more. And it pretty quickly became apparent that these were highly significant, highly relevant, at least some of them. And they're included in the report that's available online. People can go to uh, our website at the Justice Department's uh, it's DOJ, I think it's oig.doj.gov, but you can go to oversight.gov, which is the IG community's website, if you just type it in, or any Google search, oig.justice.gov. But any Google search will pick these up right away. If you do Clinton email investigation, DOJ, OIG investigation, you can look at this. The texts are in the report that we found that were particularly problematic, and it became pretty clear to us that these were going to be particularly relevant text messages. So much so, and this is public, I think it may be even in the report, but I certainly have talked about it at hearings, that we reached out immediately, I reached out immediately, to the Deputy Attorney General, because if you keep remember, Attorney General Sessions was recused. So the Deputy Attorney General was the acting Attorney General for these purposes. And at the time, Special Counsel Mueller, because Peter Strzok, and it turned out 
Lisa Page was no longer working there, but both of them were still, were we thought, working there. And we met with them to let them know right away about these text messages so they could take mitigation measures promptly, um, which is consistent, by the way, with how we do things. Um, we don't hold things to the very end to surprise everybody with what we found at the Justice Department. If we think they need to fix something right away, we let them know right away so they can fix it, right? We would be correctly criticized if we found out something in, you know, June and waited until the next year, June, when we released our report to say, oh, by the way, the Justice Department has been violating people's rights for this long, but we were busy writing our report, right? We got to let people know to fix it right away. So we met right away with them so they could take action. And we then continued our work. And we went back and we kept digging. We went and got devices from the FBI that had been theirs previously and other people's, by the way, previously, including then former Director Comey, to look for any potentially problematic text messages. And so, yeah, it was pretty, pretty, it wasn't, uh, you know, the same day that I got told by the team these were, there were these text messages because we they hadn't. I don't recall if they had that they had found the ones that became the most significant ones yet, but we did start finding them. And then when they came back with the ones a week or two later or so, you know, it was like, okay, we need to alert the acting attorney general, the special counsel who may be employing these people, not for any other reason, by the way, just to make clear, we were not describing for the special counsel substantively what we were learning, just what we thought he needed to know to manage his employees um, who we thought might be working there still. And for those listening who are sitting there thinking, you know, that sounds a little bit familiar. I wonder what they're talking about. I mean, uh, Peter Stark, Lisa Page, really, to a certain extent, Andy McCabe, although he he would have been known for, for, you know, in other circles as well. But those texts, Congress investigated this matter, the House and Senate, the media, of course, provides oversight, but it was the inspector general's office who, because of the thoroughness of your investigation, I got to ask you this before I let you go, just under the heading that God has a sense of humor. So you go through mid-year exam, which is a highly politicized, I mean, Secretary Clinton running for president and not a person in the world doesn't have their mind made up, probably, or pick and choose part of your report for their own ends. And then something called Crossfire Hurricane comes your way, which kind of makes mid-year exams seem like small in nature. So what was your – that report is also – anybody wants to know what Michael Horowitz found there, you can go read it. But, well, here, let me ask you this. Those are so well-known. People can go read them. Do you ever worry, look, that is not the bulk of what we do. The bulk of what we do is stuff that y'all have never heard about, you've never read about. So here, I'm going to let you, before we go, you tell us the stuff that, that doesn't get the attention. So just on you, you Crossfire Hurricane, when we released the report uh, on December 8th, not that these dates are stuck in my head or anything, <laughs> uh, December 8th of 2019, we had over the next that day and a couple of days, 20 million hits to our website to get the report, which when you think about the fact that every news outlet had it on their website, it blew my mind that we could have that much focus on our website for that report. But it, it's a great question. I, day in, day out, we do such important work making sure that the Justice Department employees are acting by the book and that the programs are being operated as the taxpayers and the public would expect them to be operated. And so I'm going to make a plug for people. If you go to our website or if you go to oversight.gov, you can follow us. You'll just, we're on Twitter or X. You will get a tweet. Or I'm not sure what it's called now. <laughs> uh, if it's not a tweet, um, I'm old fashioned. I'm months out of date that let you know just we did something that day and what we did. You won't get bombarded with stuff beyond that. And then you can decide to click on the link and go read it if you want. 
follow us on this. You'll learn all about what we're doing day in, day out. We're issuing summaries regularly of misconduct by DOJ employees. I think one of the things that's underappreciated sometimes in the public is how much work my agents and staff have done in a space that I think wasn't always looked at closely, which is sexual assaults and sexual harassment department. And much of the federal government has a zero tolerance policy. We regularly do reports about how employees engaged in misconduct by violating that. But I think the big area that people don't follow is the Bureau of Prisons. It has enormous problems. And it has problems with how it not only treats its most dangerous inmates, but how it treats all of its inmates. We're now talking about people in camps, white collar. Prosecutors are talking about we've done a lot of work in female prisons. We have, this is underappreciated piece of information, I think. We have an ongoing investigation in Dublin, California. I can speak about it because it's what it's public, the investigation, because we've prosecuted now multiple employees there for sexually assaulting female inmates. Dublin's a female institution, all-female institution. Um, we did a search warrant on the warden's residence. He got convicted after trial of sexually assaulting inmates there. The prison chaplain was convicted of sexual assault. By the way, that's the second prison chaplain we've prosecuted in the last five years. We prosecuted one for a New Hampshire prison that was smuggling contraband into the prison for inmates. We have multiple other employees there who've been convicted, charged, investigations ongoing. You know, this is an issue when the public thinks, is there any bipartisanship left? Well, here's one for folks, which is the hearing I had about a year ago before Senate Homeland Security Government Affairs Subcommittee, chaired at the time by Senator Ossoff of Georgia, ranking member was Senator Johnson of Wisconsin, people who have obviously two very different political views. They issued a joint report about how problematic the sexual assault was in the BOP facilities, working together. Um, and, and after that, a camera bill passed Congress that had, they had been supportive of. And so I think that's an area that's very important that people should follow. We've launched this year, thanks to Congress giving us an appropriation for this. Last year, in a year that was obviously, you know, very tough, we got 4 million people to hire 16 uh, people to do unannounced inspections, among other things, of federal BOP facilities. And we created an interdisciplinary team of our agents, our lawyers, our auditors, our evaluators, our inspectors to do work together to make sure we could more effectively tackle the BOP issues. We did a surprise, an unannounced inspection um, earlier this year at the Wasika prison in Minnesota, all-female institution. We picked it because in our risk ranking that we've created, it was a relatively lower risk prison. We hadn't gotten a lot of complaints, seemed to be running well. Report is public. We got there on a Monday morning, called the warden at 8 a.m., said we're going to be there at noon, and we spent the week. Turns out the kitchen has some holes in the ceiling. And in Minnesota, that ain't so good, right, to have, you know, to see the sky in the kitchen, right? So we find damage to the institution there. The inmates, some of them are living in basement rooms. It was, by the way, the former uh, dormitory for a University of Minnesota facility that the BOP took over many years ago. They have bunk beds with pump pumps riding right above the heads of the inmates that have plastic wrapped around them because they're leaking. Mm. And if you woke up in the middle of the night, you'd hit your head right on the, on the pipe. Other problems as well. And issued the report. Public can, you can go see it. Um, way understaffed. Big problem at the Bureau of Prisons. Turns out they need to aug what's called augment the correctional staff because they're short-staffed. So they're pulling facilities people and program teachers off to do correctional duty, officer, correctional officer duty to watch over the inmates. What does that mean? Huge wait lists for programs, which means the First Step Act, it was passed, signed by President Trump, bipartisan support in Congress. You might have, I think you were there when yeah, it passed. It yeah. Right. Those people, those inmates who are in, supposed to get that, those programs aren't getting in a timely way. It's all a cascading problem from this. And so 
people can go see that report. I'll tease one that's going to come out fairly soon. Our second unannounced inspection was of the federal prison in Tallahassee, Florida, that we picked because it was on the higher end of our risk profile. And it was both a women's prison and a separate men's prison. I would encourage to watch for that and go see it. It should be out, hopefully, in the next few weeks. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. You know, Mr. Inspector General, you mentioned bipartisanship. The other thing I get asked all the time is, where can I go for the truth? They, they just, we just live in this culture where it just seems like uh, this, this, this camp advocates this way. I, I really, of all the entities in D.C., the one that reminded me the most of the courtroom was yours. And that means that on any given day, everyone's going to be mad at you on the better days only half the world is mad at you but i really don't ever remember a day when your agency was not respected i I really don't i I mean i people read the report and they say well gosh i i wish there were more text i wish the text were more inflammatory but i never ever heard anyone say there were more text and horowitz didn't include never heard it so i want people i wanted people to be introduced to you and and introduced to your the folks that you work with, and they can go read these reports. You want to know where to go to find the truth? Go read the report yeah. of the person who actually interviewed the most number of witnesses. That might be where the truth is. Yeah, that's a great point. I tell you, I went to um, spoke at a program um, at a university, um, and it was not long after our report about. Um, Deputy, then Deputy Director McCabe, and through our, our findings of his uh, make lack of candor on multiple occasions, false statements on multiple occasions. And people asked some very good questions. They clearly understood the issues. But I asked folks in the room, it was a 30, it's a 35 or so page report. It's not one of our 500 page reports. It's a 35 or so page report with a pretty short executive summary. So you can take a look at it. But I said to folks, you know, let me just ask, how many people here have actually read the report or even just put eyes on the report? I think I got one or two hands. This is at a university, like, you know, setting. I said, how many of you would have done that when you were in college, gone to a professor and said, I have a question about this report that I never read. And I asked, where did you, you know, well, where did you clearly know a lot about it? And everybody it was from news, TV news some people from print media, mostly from TV news. And I said, that's fine. You can have your point of view from wherever you get your news. But if you really care about it and it's accessible to you, we try, people have a right to be upset about a lot of things in government that aren't accessible to them. As you know, we make everything accessible to the public that we're legally allowed to make accessible to the public. Classified is an exception. Sometimes the Privacy Act limits us on what we can do. Sometimes there's other laws that prohibit us from making certain things public. But we always start from the proposition that everything we do should be public unless we can't make it public. So this is one of those rare areas, potentially, where people can do, as you said, go to the website. It's all sitting there and make up your own mind. I'm not here to tell you I can I'm giving you my opinion based on the what I think are the full, complete set of facts Every citizen has a right to disagree. Um, And, you know, we'd be better off, right, democracy if everybody did have a knowledge base and could have an informed discussion about all issues. And really, that's what we aim to do. And the reports are remarkably easy to read. I mean, for those who think, well, gosh, I I read one Supreme Court opinion. I I can't read another legal document. These don't read like Supreme Court opinions. I'll say this, Mr. Inspector General, for all the work, look, and, and, and you won't comment because you're too smart to do that. All the investigations the House did while I was there, all the investigations the Senate did, all the, the stuff the media uncovered. I think your entity, the Inspector General for DOJ, uncovered more previously unknown information than any other entity. You just don't go on television and talk about it 
But in terms of people really do care about facts and, and they're right when they tell me, look, where do I go to just find what really happened? Uh, go to the uh, website for the inspector general for the Department of Justice, at least on the matters that we have discussed. So, look. I wanted you to be better known. I know it doesn't mean anything to you, but I wanted people to know where to go. Oh, it does matter. You know, this is great. It's very important for us to let people know we weren't, as Dr. Coburn told me right from day one, you know, I don't work for me. I work for, we will all work for the public. If we're in public service, there's a reason it's called public service. And I very much appreciate your comment about the readability of our reports, because we work really hard to make these not lawyerly reports or accounting-like reports or Washington verbiage reports. We really try and make it available to the public. And this goes to what I said earlier about training, uh, you know, trying to be able to speak to those 12 jurors, the public, who aren't lawyers, perhaps, who often come into the courtroom not knowing a thing about what they're about to hear. Right. They don't know anything about it, usually. And I tell my folks, actually, all the time when we speak about writing reports, you say to them is think of yourself sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table with your extended family and your, you know, third cousin or your uncle that you haven't seen in a while turns to you and says, what are you working on and why does it matter to me? And if you can't explain it to that person, right, it's Thanksgiving, they got the football game on. They're going to go, oh, thanks. I'm going to go watch the football game. That's a lot more interesting mm. than anything you do, right? I, we've got to make sure that people understand, you know, wh- why this matters, why it's important. But again, I hope everybody listening understands the goal is to get you all the facts. You'll have our analysis. You don't have to agree. But Hopefully, you're not reading the facts and saying, I don't believe that, because hopefully we've done our jobs by putting out what are clearly indisputable facts. Fact-centric, readable, and for those nerds that that are like me and always are asking, well, says who? How do you know that? He's really good about dropping footnotes to show you exactly (laughs) where it came from. So. He is the Inspector General for the Department of Justice, Mr. Michael Horowitz. Uh, Hard to find anybody that didn't get a dissenting vote when he was uh, confirmed, when he or she were confirmed. But that's that that's his background. That's who he is. Check out Oversight.gov. Where else can they find you? OIG.justice.gov. When we put out reports, I do short videos oftentimes for the higher profile ones. Um, they can find all sorts of information about us on there. Knowledge is power. If you want more knowledge, check out his work. I cannot thank you enough, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.